Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play another of the 2017 Palenque Norte lectures, the ones that the good folks at Camp Soft Landing sponsored at the recent Burning Man Festival. And thanks to their good work and the dedication of Frank Nuccio, who recorded these talks for us, well, today we're going to hear a recent update by Rick Doblin concerning the important breakthrough in MDMA research that's just recently taken place. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you already know that I've been aware of the work of Rick Doblin for a long time, before he even founded the MAPS organization, in fact. When I first learned of his amazing efforts to promote the medical benefits of MDMA, well, he was a real hero to me and my friends because, well, he was right up there on the front lines of political action while we were still deep in the underground selling MDMA to large numbers of people in Dallas, Texas. So when a potential customer would ask us about why we thought they should give MDMA a try, well, we'd give them copies of stories about Rick that were published in some of the mainstream publications. Thus, uh, well, at least in our own minds, giving some legitimacy to what we were doing in the underground. So, while we were dodging the authorities, Rick was right up there in their faces, giving them the facts about the potential of using MDMA as medicine. Now, after more than 30 years of hard work, Rick has been able to get the U.S. government, the leading bad guys in the war on drugs, to finally admit that, yes, MDMA might just be what they so desperately need to fight the ever-growing numbers of our fellow citizens who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And that, my fellow saloners, is an accomplishment of monumental proportions. Granted, it has taken the combined efforts of MAPS's volunteers and staff, their donors, uh, both large and small, and the continuing support of all of us. But without Rick Doblin, I personally don't think that we would be anywhere nearly as close as we now are to seeing therapists trained and licensed to use MDMA in their practices. As we say in the Navy, when someone exceeds all expectations, well done, Rick, well done. And now let's join some of our fellow psychonauts in the big tent at Camp Soft Landing on the last Friday night in August, the night before the burn, where Rick Doblin is delivering the last Planque Norte lecture of the 2017 Burning Man Festival. Presenting Phase 3 Trials of MDMA for PTSD Research. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. Um, well, thank you all, all at Planque Norte for organizing this. And I'd, I'd like to also um, thank the people who are running the tea house, uh, Soft Landing Tea House. Um, um, I'm, I'm proud to say that I saw the sunrise uh, yesterday. Um, and I was super tired last night, and I was here visiting with John Gilmore, and I said, I need a nap. So I just <laughs> went over to the tea house and slept till about 3 in the morning and then checked out the temple. Um, how many people have heard me talk before? Okay, 
a little bit less than half could. So, because what I, I'm going to do today is to talk really briefly about the why. Why it's important that our culture integrate psychedelics. And I think a lot of us already uh, have some good ideas about that. So that part will be pretty brief about the why. And then I'm going to talk about uh, the strategy and how we've tried to move forward with medicalizing psychedelics. And then I'm going to give you a sense of where we're at right now and, and what is it looking forward into the future and then what are the challenges, the regulatory issues that we still have to address with FDA and DEA as we roll it out. And I'll give you kind of a grand perspective of how I think that psychedelics will be legal um, in 2035 for any use at all. And I think we'll have medicalization of MDMA in 2021. And we'll actually be able to open psychedelic clinics um, in the summer of 2019. So I'm going to explain how all this uh, is possible and how all it comes about. But I'd also like to encourage you to ask questions at any point. So instead of me talking, and you know, I will come to an end <laughs> at some point, and then we can have more dialogue. But I'd like to encourage you to ask questions at any point. So whenever something is coming up, just raise your hand and we can discuss it then. So I think it's sometimes better to um, address the questions when they come up and then it'll be more relevant answers. And then, then we can have kind of a group dialogue. Um, I just am curious if, if you're willing to say if either you or a friend have um, benefited um, therapeutically from psychedelics. If, if you could just raise your hand. <laughs> okay. okay. It's... Um, it's something that has been used for thousands of years. So the, the, the why part of why we need to integrate psychedelics into our culture um, sort of was something that I came to understand in 1972 when I was 18 after taking a bunch of LSD and mescaline. I was really lucky that somebody came by my college with half a pound of mescaline. So I proceeded to buy all of it. <laughs> And, and friends and I distributed it, and and so it's um, it's really a remark. It's it's one of the most important psychedelics that's not being researched right now. Um, so the why that came to me then was looking at um, being a draft resistor for Vietnam, looking at our culture, sort of embarking on this um, or continuing on this war that was uh, counterproductive and senseless in a lot of ways. Prior to that, having been very much traumatized by the Cuban Missile Crisis when I was um, a little boy, and just this whole idea of um, the world potentially exploding and us killing ourselves. And even before that, as a very young boy, was being raised Jewish and being taught about the Holocaust. So I think that in some ways I you know, had the secondary trauma, but I was able to um, negotiate it from within a very loving family, and I had all the benefits that you could imagine to think about um, being empowered to change the world. So uh, I was first off white, <laughs> um, American, and we were the, um, just won World War II, and so we were the most powerful country in the world. So I kind of grew up believing American exceptionalism. I had no real discrimination that I experienced. Um, I did uh, get a lot of the Jews chosen people kind of thing. So that was good. And I was the firstborn male child. So I had every possible advantage, from, and also from a family that had 
um, come over as refugees um, in the 1880s from Russia and Poland on one branch and then the other from Poland in the 1920s. And they had um, made themselves successful, the American dream, and they were willing to support me in whatever I wanted to do, which was really important. Um, and so I, I kind of grew up realizing that my family would help me try to um, find what I, what I wanted to do. And to their surprise and, and not complete pleasure, uh, pleasure when I was um, 17 at college, I started doing LSD. I, I was the model child in high school. I never did anything wrong. I never got in trouble. I had a very boring high school life. Um, and I sort of fulfilled my parents' dreams. And then I went off to college, and within a couple months, I was clear that um, I needed to drop out and that I wanted to study LSD and that I wanted my parents to pay for it. <laughs> and so um, my father was like, well, this is a terrible mistake, um, but you're such a stubborn guy that if you... Um, if I don't help you, you'll go ahead and you'll do it, and then you'll realize it's a mistake, but you won't admit it because you want to see that you were right and I was wrong, and you'll keep at it a long time. But if I help you, you'll realize it was a mistake sooner. <laughs> but, and then he, had, he was programmed by my grandparents from the age of four. He knew he had to be a doctor. He was a single child of immigrants. They were poor. He had to be a Jewish doctor. So he... Um, wanted to do the opposite with us. So he said, I have a shred of doubt. Maybe you know what you need to do. Maybe we don't have it programmed. And so he said, yes, they would support me to go off at age 18 to study with Stan Groff and drop out of college and be a bad example for my two younger brothers and sister. <laughs> and I felt that it was that sort of loving support that helped me to realize that, um, I mean, John you know, can tell you that the technological advancements are miraculous. I mean, we're making magic real in all sorts of different ways. And the ability, I think, for us to use the mind, to use rationality, to use our technology to solve the resource problems, to have enough food, to have enough shelter, to have enough water for the people in the planet, I think we can do that. I think we can technologically figure out ways to deal with global warming. We can technologically using the brilliance of the human mind, come up with solutions to pretty much all of our problems. But what's blocking that is the emotional, spiritual underdevelopment compared to our intellectual cognitive abilities. And it's those irrational passions and hatreds and fears and projections that are really what's threatening our ability as a species and as a planet to move forward. And what I intimated in my early LSD and mescaline sessions, they weren't all beautiful and peaceful and, um, you know, unity with God. Uh, they were more like taking a very rigid intellectual person and helping me to start to feel and helping me have emotions and helping me just starting to wrestle with some deeper questions. But the, it was problematic. Um, and so I, I was so lucky to... Um, go to the guidance counselor at my college and, and say, help me with my tripping. Um, and uh, this fellow said, yes. Keep in mind, this is 1972. And so he, he handed me a book by Stan Groff that was called Realms of the Human Unconscious. And it was about the research with psychedelics, about their mapping of the unconscious. They're very much focused on uh, spirituality, the spiritual experience. And it was science 
and it had political implications from this uh, the kind of experiences people had. And at the same time, it was about therapy. It was like the reality check of can we use these drugs to actually help people get better. So it wasn't abstract philosophy or abstract philo- for religion. It was kind of all of that focused on a therapeutic uh, pros- project. And so I felt that's it. That, and I realized that the psychedelics were all shut down, and, and I would work to try to bring them back. So that was my mission at age 18. And the, the, the core sort of theory of social change that I came to was that these ideas that the, how we define ourselves, the way that we think of us in our race, our religion, our culture, our gender, our gender orientation, our socioeconomic status, all of those things are, are important. We're tribal, we're group animals, and we have all these different ways that we uh, become part of groups, and that's where we get our identities. But deeper than that is the web of life. Deeper than that is part of the human family, part of the web of life. And if you can experience that and know that, then you're not going to hate people so much that are different from you. You're not going to be so much scared. If you know your commonality under that, under all the differences, then we appreciate differences. We won't be so much fearful, and, and then we'll, we'll work on common strategies. So that was the concept. And I had that reaffirmed for me um, in 1983 when I read a book by the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, Robert Mueller. Um, It was um, New Genesis, uh, uh, Building a Global Spirituality. And so what his view was that at the UN, working on uh, mediating conflicts between nations, that a lot of the conflicts were religious-based and that what we needed to go further was to have an understanding that all the different religions... Um, are using different cultural symbols, different words, different processes, but they're all talking about the same thing. And that his fundamental thesis was that um, mysticism is the antidote to fundamentalism. That this sense of commonality, this unity that you can experience has profound political implications. And there's actually been recent studies at the Imperial College in London looking at people that are getting Um, psilocybin in research and are showing that their attitudes towards nature are changing afterwards. They're becoming more um, politically progressive. So it's sort of the intimations of things that we felt during the 60s that people were talking about how psychedelics can uh, be an engine of the anti-Vietnam War movement and the engine of uh, environmental movement, a lot of things. So we have both experimental confirmation from some recent studies And Robert Mueller was saying from the UN perspective that this is what he felt was necessary, but he didn't really talk about psychedelics. So I wrote him a letter and said, um, will you help with psychedelics? And to my surprise, he wrote me back. So I was just a college undergraduate, and he gave a list of mystics of different religions for me to contact. And um, of course, I read between the lines, and I heard him say, send them MDMA. (laughs) And so I did. And they, um, so Roman Catholic monks, Jewish rabbis, um, Zen meditators, people around the world who would then take MDMA in monasteries sometimes for meditation and Zen um, meditation centers and other contexts and report back to Robert Mueller that it seemed to work. And then he and I kept in contact. So 
This was really the why. I think that fundamentally psychedelics are a tool. They're not a unique tool. People can get to these states of mind in other ways. They're not essential. And I think that's one of the um, mistakes of the 60s was for people to say, I've tripped, I know stuff that nobody else knows, and they can only know it in my way through taking these drugs. So I think it's very important to affirm that there are multiple ways to these experiences, but that for many of us and for thousands of years in human history, psychedelics have been a catalyst for it. And so in the interest of effectiveness and efficiency, um, in the sense of how the crises we are require a more rapid response, if we can manage that, that psychedelics integrated into culture will eventually give people the opportunity to have these kind of unit of mystical experiences and that will um, change their attitudes and build a more um, successful and healthy world. And in addition, the therapeutic use of psychedelics, particularly MDMA for PTSD, we can be breaking multi-generational cycles of trauma. And what we see and now know for, uh, through epigenetics is that it's possible in one generation for fears and anxieties of the mother to be passed on to the child. And so we, we, we know that it takes longer for genetic mutations to take place, but epigenetics is about which genes are turned on or off. And that you can affect in one generation, in one lifetime. Sometimes in one psychedelic experience you can, or one therapeutic experience, you can make those changes. So I think for us to break these cycles of multi-generational trauma, people who have hated each other for you know, thousands or more years, and also for building this sense of we're all in it together, I think it's essential that we integrate psychedelics into our culture. And that was a motivating force for me at age 18, and now that I'm 63, uh, I'm so happy it still makes sense. <laughs> and not only does it make sense, but it makes sense even more. And I've seen so much how, over time, it just really feels right. And I've seen a lot of people who've had experience. Like, I'll just share that the person that I go to sit with when I have my own LSD experiences, my own therapist, um, his father was a Nazi. And so one generation down... You know, the son of a Nazi and the son of a Jew whose relatives were distant relatives killed in the Holocaust are, like, um, super tight. So I think that that, for me, is kind of a symbol of how much um, we can overcome these kind of divisions and things by having these deeper experiences and not projecting outward all the time, not scapegoating. So I think it's absolutely essential. And it felt like if you can change consciousness that will change everything else. You know, that, that people's attitudes towards politics, towards the other, towards compassion will be changed. And so I felt there was a certain kind of high leverage uh, value in going on integrating psychedelics. That's why. All right, so now is the how. Um, there's multiple strategies. One strategy, because we've talked, I've just talked about the mystical experience, we've talked about um, thousands of years of psychedelics being used in mostly religious contexts. One approach is religious freedom. And what we see is that, um, sort of in this brief sweep of history, that the foundations of Western thought were the Greeks, and they had the longest running mystery ceremony, 2,000 years, the Eleusinian Mysteries. 
wiped out in 396 by the Catholic Church that wanted to be the intermediary between spirituality. And so ever since then, really, we've not had much in the way of freedom of religion in the Western context with psychedelics. When the conquistadors came over to the New World and they saw the use of mushrooms and they saw the use of peyote, those were the big enemies, and they uh, criminalized that. They killed and tortured a bunch of the shamans, and they tried to wipe that out because that was a competing source of power, and they came in with their new religion on top of Christianity. And really, it was up until the 1890s where mescaline was first synthesized from peyote, and the William James, who was at um, Harvard, started experimenting with nitrous oxide, the foundation father of modern psychology, that psychedelics began to be um, woven back into Western culture. And there was a fair amount of research in the 30s and 20s with mescaline. The, um, one of the... It's been said, I've tried to track it down, I haven't been able to find the final, final reference, but it's been said that the um, person who was in charge of the design of Fantasia for Disney had experiences with mescaline prior to that. So I'm not sure if that's true, but it could be. Um, But what we then see is, um, starting in the 50s, is really this expansion of the use of psychedelics and their both therapeutic role, their role in spirituality, and also their military use. And that sort of, you know, Ken Kesey first got LSD in a CIA experiment and then brought it out. And so we get this big, rapid evolution of an enormous amount of interest in the scientific community, thousands and thousands of studies, um, about 30,000, 40,000 patients in studies, but it leaks out into the culture, psychedelics be used by the anti-war movement, and then we get a backlash, and things are are basically wiped out. And so the medical use, then, was a difficult route as well, and religious freedom is very limited. So what we have managed to get back in the U.S. is uh, the Native American church has the religious freedom to use peyote, but the federal government, to try to block that from spreading, said that you had to have 25% Indian blood or more to be part of these ceremonies. So it's the first racial division, racial requirement for religion. Completely nonsensical. A lot of states will let people participate in peyote no matter what their background is. Um, But that is about half a million members of the Native American church can legally use peyote in the U.S. And then we also have the recent Supreme Court case with the Uñao de Vegetal, the use of ayahuasca, and they have a, they're a branch of a Brazilian church, and they won freedom of religion. So ayahuasca in this religious context can be used. There's the Santo Daime, which is another church. They went up to the Ninth Circuit. They won their case. So we have two ayahuasca churches, but there's a concern about formalizing that as it grows because there's a question if um, really why should we have to belong to religions that are older and established, we should be able to start our own. What's the difference? We shouldn't even have to have a group. We should be able to have our own individual spirituality. So there's going to be legal limits on how well religious freedom will be expanded. And for those of you that are aware of the use of ayahuasca and the way that it's spreading in the U.S., much of that use is illegal because it's not formally in those religious settings. But at the same time, it's sort of legal. There are 
certain kind of prayers, certain things. And so the DEA has basically not gone after the use of ayahuasca, even outside of these religious settings. And that is creating a really good opportunity for all sorts of people to be learning about the potential of psychedelics. So the religious freedom in a formal way is not going to expand much further, I don't think. But the way in which it's protecting sort of quasi-legal use is, is really remarkable. But I, I don't think in a formal way it's going to go. And I think the legalization effort is ultimately what we need because we all should have our own access to tools to change consciousness. And it shouldn't be medicalized. It shouldn't require Cole, who's a doctor here, working on our MDMA projects to, and caffeine projects. It shouldn't require a prescription from Cole. To, you know, although... Um, when you get a prescription from coal, then it should be covered by insurance and it should be part of our mainstream medicine. But we should have all this individual freedom. And the question is, how do we get there? How do we get to a place where loads of people can have these experiences, can have this deeper knowledge, we can build a more healthy population? And I think the most strategic route is medicalization. And what we see from medical marijuana is that... There was struggles during the um, 60s, 70s, a recognition of the beneficial uses of marijuana, widespread. And it felt like the move towards legalization was um, sort of moving forward in the 70s. And Jimmy Carter was elected in 76 on the platform of um, decriminalizing marijuana. But then there was a backlash by the rise of the parents' movements and suddenly there's no talk anymore about marijuana legalization. And, and I remember discussions among people at Normal about debating which year marijuana would be legal. And some people saying, oh, you know, you're saying five years, it's going to be way sooner. So there was a lot of people that were, were hoping and thinking and misjudging the culture to the extent that, that we were caught unawares by this backlash. And that sort of blocked anything from expanding for several decades and it wasn't until 1996 that California and Arizona passed medical marijuana and the attitudes towards legalization of the American voters there's been a Gallup poll summary of Gallup polls since 1970 to just two years ago and in 1970 it was 12% were in favor of legalization of marijuana it rose to around 20% in the 70s then we get this backlash and then it sort of stays the same for about 20 years. And starting in 1998 or so, attitudes towards legalization increase. And a few years ago, it crossed the 50% mark of 50% American voters. But if you track the growth of support for legalization with the growth of the medical marijuana movement, they're pretty similar. So the theory is that medicalization will lead to legalization. And I think we've seen that with, with marijuana. But it takes decades. It takes a long time for that to happen. But I think that in our culture, using science, using medicine, trying to work through the FDA and focusing on illnesses that people have compassion for, that we can medicalize psychedelics. And so that's the fundamental strategy that I think is um, demonstrated to to have been successful. One of the, some of the polling has been done for why are people voting for marijuana? 
and for marijuana legalization. And, and one of the findings was that um, if you knew a medical marijuana patient, that that was a powerful determiner of who was in support of legalization. So there's so much misinformation people have gotten. But if you know somebody directly that has benefited, then that is your solid data point that you know for sure. So medicalization, I think, is the strategy that I've decided to adopt. And so um, in 82, I learned about MDMA. It was underground drug, but it was also starting to be sold as ecstasy. So it was clear that the underground therapeutic use of MDMA was doomed and that the above-ground use of ecstasy was going to be the cause. But there was this interim period where it was legal and we could prepare in different ways to educate different people and prepare our lawsuit against the DEA when they would inevitably move against MDMA. And so in the summer of 84, uh, DEA tried to criminalize MDMA. And there's a 30-day period of um, comment. I went to D.C., filed some papers for this hearing, and we had a DEA administrative law judge hearing, which we won. The judge said MDMA should be um, Schedule Three available to medicine. But the head of the DEA rejected the recommendation. And so it was clear we couldn't force them further. We, we sued them further in the appeals court. We won a couple times. Eventually, we lost. So in 86, I started MAPS as a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, focused primarily on uh, MDMA, but also other psychedelics and marijuana. And, and at the same time, I'm still training myself to become a psychedelic therapist and to one day you know, be a legal psychedelic therapist. So it took us six years from 86 to 92 to get the first protocol approved by the FDA. Um, they rejected five protocols before then, and it wasn't so much that our sixth protocol was way better than the others. What happened was that the people at the FDA that regulated psychedelics switched, and a new group took over. And this new group decided that um, science over politics, and they would permit psychedelics and marijuana research to start. What had also happened is that I had tried to get into a clinical psych PhD program to learn about how to do psychotherapy outcome research with MDMA. Nobody would let me in. This is the late 1980s. And so I was blocked. I'd been since 72 to 88. I'd been thinking, this is what I want to do, and now I can't do it. So I decided uh, to smoke some pot and think it over. And uh, it's, it's a really good technique that many of us know when you're in a box to try to question your assumption. So I was under the influence of pot. I was like, I want to do this. I want too much too soon. The science is being blocked by the politics. Maybe I should switch and study the politics. So I decided, where am I going to study the politics? Harvard, Kennedy School of Government. I knew of a professor there. and So eventually I managed to talk to him. I managed to get in. So I have this uh, master's and PhD from the Kennedy School of Government with a focus on the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics. And while I was there for my master's, I got um, what's called a presidential management fellowship for people who want a career in the federal government. I, I kind of um, managed to use the credibility of the Kennedy School and get into this program. And I, uh, then I tried to get a job at the FDA. And, <laughs> and um, you can see how I'm dressed now, which is how I like to be dressed. But I was willing to give up drugs, wear a suit, and go into work at the FDA. And I almost got hired. I came super close to getting hired. Uh, but at the last minute, the DEA said that they would refuse to work with me 
and, and I was, of course, trying to work with the FDA branch that works with Schedule I drugs. So in the end, I didn't get the job, but the FDA people said they would help out uh, informally and give us advice on how to bring projects to them. And they also approved our first study in 1992, which was a dose-response phase one safety study with MDMA. And so that took us through much of the 90s. And then in 2000, I started working with Michael Midhofer, who was um, a psychiatrist trained by Stan Groff in the holotropic breath work. And yeah, he came to me in 2000 at the first ayahuasca conference that was in the United States, organized by Ralph Metzner in San Francisco. And Michael said, um, I'm a member of MAPS. I didn't know him. He said, I've been trained with Stan Groff, as I had been. And he said, I would like to work with you on setting up an offshore clinic somewhere where we can treat people with psychedelics. So it, it took me about 10 seconds to say, I'm absolutely not interested in that. That we, we can't run to the periphery that, you know, in the era of global warming and the era of nuclear weapons, in the era of globalization, there's no safe place. There's nowhere you can run. You got to go to the heart of the system and change it from the inside out. So I said, let's forget about this offshore clinic and let's go to the FDA and try to make change from there and I think it can be done. So it took us four years from 2000 to 2004 to get permission for the first MDMA study, which was mostly women survivors of childhood sexual abuse um, who were treatment resistant, had failed on both psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy, had PTSD an average of 17 years or more, and were the hardest cases in many ways. But that's who we started with. And while we were doing that study, because I was sort of aware of the potential for backlash, we started thinking of an international strategy. So we started research in Switzerland with MDMA, also in Israel, also in Canada. And so from 2004, where we started with these women survivors of childhood sexual abuse, then we started seeing more and more people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan with PTSD. And so the question was, does MDMA work regardless of the cause of PTSD? Will it work in war-related PTSD as well as chronic uh, complex PTSD or childhood sexual abuse? And so we started a study that was with veterans, but for political reasons, we decided just to put in the title, it's for veterans, firefighters, and police officers. We didn't think we'd get any firefighters or police officers, but we just wanted to say, you know, those oppressors that we think of out there, this is for you too. And the way it turned out, and I've gotten a lot more compassionate for the police, is actually we did have one police officer volunteer for the study who had work-related PTSD. And we had several firefighters, one of whom had PTSD from 9-11. So what we were able to, to show in that study is that unlike Zoloft and Paxil, which are the only drugs approved by the FDA for PTSD, that tend to work more in women and not in men and didn't work whenever they've used it for combat, that MDMA worked for war-related PTSD and MDMA worked for complex PTSD and MDMA worked for PTSD from accidents. And so from starting in 2000 to 2016, we completed a whole series of phase two pilot studies, the purpose of which is to figure out how to design phase three. And phase three are the pivotal studies that are required to make a drug into a medicine. So on November 29th, 2016, we went before the FDA for what's called an end of phase two meeting. 
And we had incredible, we treated 107 people. And we also had developed new relationships with um, two groups of people that were crucial to our negotiations. As I said, we started this in 1986, and it was 30 years before the end of phase two meeting. And during that time, some of the key people with FDA that we had been working with had retired. And so through a chance meeting that I had with John, with the daughter of one of the people from FDA, who was um, seeking a job at the Electronic Frontier, um, we were able to um, get in touch with her father and others. So we have several senior FDA officials who worked at the Division of Psychiatry Products who are now consulting with us to help us work with FDA. And they've trained the people that are now in charge, too, of the Division of Psychiatry Products. And then a Burning Man connection that was uh, around 2003 was um, what I call the refugees from Big Pharma. So there, a woman came to me, Amy Emerson, and she said she want, worked for um, Novartis. She wanted to help um, world's largest pharmaceutical companies, one of them, and she wanted to help out. And she said, when you're ready, you know, let me know. And so a few years later, we got ready. And so now our core clinical team is a group of people, many of whom worked at Novartis, who are now working for MAPS. So we have the wisdom of the FDA regulators, the expertise and wisdom of big pharma. And the beauty of the people that we have from Novartis is that Novartis is the company that gobbled up Sandoz. And Sandoz is the company that Albert Hoffman worked for when he invented LSD and when he first synthesized psilocybin. So we have kind of the pharmaceutical psychedelic wisdom. And so all of these – and the other thing that we have going for us – is as you can tell, out in the wider culture, there has been this incredible recognition of the rate of suicides of veterans, the lack of available treatments, the, the psychotherapies work in some people, but they leave a large number untreated. Yeah? I'm sorry, I may have missed it while I was walking up here. The, the part where we're going to sort of bypass big pharma... Is that where you were going with what you were just um, talking about? No, not really. Um, what I'm basically saying is we have to become big pharma. So I'm saying we need to play the game. I think working with the system, working with the FDA. So MAPS is a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. And we are negotiating with FDA about the right to market MDMA as a prescription medicine. The, the difference is that we're not out to maximize profits. We're out to maximize social benefit. And so we're not trying we, – there's no – for all the people that work with us, we don't have non-disclosure agreements. We don't have any kind of confidentiality. There's no secrets they have to protect. So in many ways, it's the opposite of Big Pharma. But it is playing by the same rules and trying to work within the system that Big Pharma works within. And there's so, so I think that's an important distinction. The, the other way to say it too is that once MDMA, it, once MAPS makes MDMA into a medicine, then what we want to do is sell it as a medicine. It would be MAPS. And we also want to sell it for a bit more than it costs us so that we can, instead of constantly going to donors and saying, give us money, we're a rare nonprofit in that we're talking about having a product at the end. And there's a program that the FDA has that was ironically developed by, um, signed into law by Reagan, so that if you're working with a drug that is off patent, MDMA was invented in 1912 by Merck. 
and they they did nothing with it. And their patent started was getting close to being expired. And in 1927, Merck did a bunch of animal studies, and they found nothing of interest, and they just let it go. So there is no patent protection. There's no use patents. MDMA is in the public domain. So that's another difference in that big pharma wants drugs that they have patented. But what Reagan did is he created these incentives. So if you can make a drug into a medicine, even if there's no patent protection, nobody can use your data for five years. And in Europe, it's 10 years in order to market it as a generic. So there is this window of time that we'll be able to probably be the only one selling MDMA. However, if some other company wants to make MDMA into a medicine, they can do so and we would help them do it because we're really more about this integration of psychedelics into cultures. It doesn't have to be just us. And the more people that do it, the more... Now, whether another company will do that, I don't think so because it's going to cost them a bunch of money and a bunch of time. They haven't started yet and they might as well just wait till it goes generic. But, but in any case, we're going to have this opportunity to go ahead and market MDMA. And so we've created a benefit corporation and there's probably three or 4,000 benefit corporations right now, and they're a modification on capitalism. So the, the problem with capitalism is that you maximize profits, but you don't need to take into account externalities or social costs. You're just looking at your own narrow company. And if minority shareholders think that the management is not maximizing profits, then they can vote the management out and get in people that are gonna put profit first. So the benefit, so it's like a cancer. It's just got to grow and grow and grow and grow, and that's what we see with a lot of a lot of economic growth. It's it's not sustainable, nor should it be. But with a benefit corporation, what you do is you maximize social benefits, not profit. And so there is no concern about shareholders saying, you know, we want you to up the price and approve way more therapists even if they're not qualified just to get more people out there doing it. So MAPS has created a benefit corporation, but it has only one investor, which is the nonprofit. So it's another a unique way to modify big pharma. So we're going to be selling MAPS is going to own the nonprofit. I mean MAPS owns the benefit corporation. People make donations to MAPS, get tax deductions, MAPS invests in the non the benefit corp. The benefit corporation sells MDMA makes a profit, uses the profits for further research. So that's the kind of virtuous cycle that we're developing. So what I think where we're at as far as reaching that goal is that at this end of phase two meeting with FDA, we presented data from 107 patients with PTSD. And what we found first off was that, and most importantly from the FDA's point of view, is that we were able to um, administer MDMA safely, that there was no serious drug-related adverse events. Um, several of the people in our study had, more than a few, had previously attempted suicide from their PTSD. None of them continued to try to do that. We had nobody um, having, you know, psychotic breaks. We, we had an excellent safety profile. Um, you know, there are risks from MDMA. People can overheat and die even from pure MDMA, um, but that doesn't happen in a clinical setting where people aren't dancing all night and where they're getting fluids. You know, not just water, it's better to drink um, stuff with electrolytes in it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so we demonstrated safety. Then we shared with them 
what our results were. So basically our treatment is 40 hours of psychotherapy. And the way these 40 hours are administered, it's by a male-female co-therapist team. And I had actually somebody at my previous talk come up to me and said, I'm transgender, and why are you saying male-female? You know, there must be a non-binary way to do this. But, uh, and, and we'll try to figure that out. But the, the concept is that there's two therapists, one maybe more male or female. The idea is that we're trying to model a healthy family life because people get into very regressed states under psychedelics. And so if you're sort of having issues with your childhood, it's good to kind of have a very successful, well-worked-out male-female team. So that's our treatment model, 40 hours of therapy. There's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, and there's only three MDMA sessions. And they're day-long sessions, uh, eight hours long, and then the people spend the night in the treatment center and then they're resting, they're reflecting, and the second day, therapists come back and they have integrative psychotherapy to help them process what happened before. So we have three preparation sessions of 90 minutes, a day-long MDMA session with the overnight stay, then three more integrative sessions before the next MDMA session, which is three to five weeks apart, and we repeat that the third time, and then we measure people two months after the last MDMA session. And that's called the primary outcome measure. So the placebo people that just got the therapy without active MDMA, 23% of them no longer had PTSD. These are treatment-resistant, chronic PTSD. People were severe to extreme, on average, were severe to extreme. And so just the therapy without any drugs was 23% effective, which is really pretty good. And so first off, it shows that we're trying our best even if they don't get MDMA to help them. Secondly, that the therapy can be effective. But then when you add MDMA, after the second MDMA session, it was up to 55% no longer had PTSD. More than twice as good when you add MDMA for two sessions. But there's a bunch of people that have more um, complex PTSD, more dissociation. They need more treatment. So we've added a third session, and it's up to 61% no longer have PTSD. But then the question is, is this durable? Is this something that maybe it's this psychedelic afterglow that just lasts a short period of time? So we did a long-term follow-up at 12 months or longer, somewhere three and a half years or more. And what we found is that the benefits actually increased over time. So at the long-term follow-up, two-thirds of the people no longer had PTSD. Now, we can't say that's all only from the MDMA because they're free to do other treatments, but MDMA opens people up to doing other treatments. or to. So it's clear that we have a durable effect that is profound, that works in people who have previously been unable to find relief, and that there was enough evidence in the 107 people of efficacy that we should move forward. And, that, and then the one other thing that we presented to the FDA was um, a little bit of an embarrassment for me because um, it was about how we're going to address the double-blind problem methodologically. And so I had thought that I solved the problem. Um, and so that, a lot of my dissertation was about the, how to solve the double-blind problem, which obviously if you take a placebo or take an MDMA pill or an LSD pill, I bet you all of you could tell the difference. <laughs> 
Um, so how do you do this standard required FDA methodology of double-blind studies? And so the solution, I thought, was low doses. So some group gets therapy plus low doses. It'll help them a little bit, but they'll be confused because they'll all get something happening, and they won't know is it the low dose or the full dose. And as long as we had confusion like that, that would count as the double-blind. So I, I opened up the meeting with the FDA to say that one of my favorite quotes, the president of Harvard said, um, never forget there's always a Harvard man on the wrong side of every issue. And so I said, in this case, it's me. I thought I solved the problem, but in our actual research, what we found is that the low doses of MDMA, 25, 30, and 40 milligrams, actually had an anti-therapeutic effect. That people got stimulated, they started to try to process their trauma, but they didn't have enough MDMA to have the fear reduction. And so it made them more uncomfortable. And so the people who had placebo inactive MDMA and the therapy, they got better uh, by around a 20 point drop on the caps, the clinician administered PTSD scale. But when you added low dose MDMA, um, they still got better, but not nearly as much. So that we said to the FDA, your model is this double-blind placebo-controlled study, but the only way we can do it is to use low-dose MDMA to create enough confusion, but you're going to actually make it easier for us to show a difference between the experimental group and the control group. And so we said, if you want us to do that, we will, but we recommend that we use an inactive placebo and the therapy. And people will know that the double-blind isn't working. They'll be able to tell, but that's still the better way to do it. And that's what we proposed to the FDA. And so at the end of the meeting, they um, said, yes, you can go to phase three. And we had pre-planned this. We had a New York Times article that came out the very next day. And so we announced to the world that now we've been approved to go to phase three. Um, and so what we then decided to do was to engage the FDA in a process which is called special protocol assessment. So not a lot of sponsors use it because it takes about six more months and sponsors from Big Pharma are trying to get their patented drugs approved as quickly as they can while the, their patent is still going. And So after we were approved for phase three, we could have gone, designed our phase three study and started. But we felt it was much better to enter this new program where what you're basically doing is you're reviewing the protocol with FDA, every aspect of the design, even down to the formula for your statistical analysis plan. They even caught uh, where we had used a minus sign that should have been a plus sign. So I was super impressed with their review. And in the end, they, we came to agreement, and they said, yes, you can do inactive placebo. Uh, yes, you can do this uh, model with three MDMA sessions. Yes, you can use the CAPS as your primary, all, all the different things. And so on July 28th, FDA sent us a letter saying, we a formal agreement letter for the special protocol assessment. So that was the real key that we could move now into phase three with understanding on the design. And what that means, this agreement letter, is that if we do the study with this design and get statistically significant evidence of efficacy and safety, the FDA will approve the drug. So it eliminates worries about Trump trying to shut it down or anything like that. It's, it's, it's pretty impressive. The, the, only, um, the only concern is that 
if you develop um, some evidence of a new safety issue, then the FDA can take that into account. But with tens of millions of people have already taken MDMA, we don't think it's very likely that we're going to discover some new safety concern. So we're pretty comfortable that with this design, with this protocol, we will be able to move forward and get the drug approved. But, and, uh, yes? Is that, is that like good grounds for clearing that up, or is it automatic? Yeah. So um, the Controlled Substances Act was created in 1970, and that's what criminalized all sorts of drugs and set up the schedules. And luckily, back in 1970, the regulators, the people in Congress, were a little bit suspicious of the police authorities and their willingness to try to shut down research. And so what the Controlled Substances Act says is that if the FDA says a Schedule One drug is a medicine, the DEA must reschedule. They can decide which schedule it goes in, but they must move it at least to Schedule Two. They have no option whatsoever to not do that. So that, that's really crucial to us. So that's another step that it, it will happen. And what we're proposing that as it becomes a medicine, we're proposing that it only be administered by therapists that we've trained. And the FDA is wanting that too, that it's only been proven safe and effective in um, MDMA plus psychotherapy. So only those people that we trained will prescribe it and only on an inpatient or a residential basis. Not a, People aren't going to have to spend the night in the treatment center, but it's not going to be a take-home medicine where people can do on their own. So from the point of a DEA, not well, I don't think it'll ever become a take-home medicine. It will become a legal drug before it becomes a take-home medicine, I think. What about your license? Well, um, here, here, okay, I'll, uh, let, me, let me go back one second to say that there's one other program that the FDA has, which we decided to go for. And it's a program that the FDA has developed to look at the most promising drugs and identify them and then make them in a special program which expedites their development. You get extra FDA help, you get uh, the meetings, more meetings with them, the meetings are shorter, they have to respond to you in a shorter time frame, and that's called breakthrough therapy. And it's there used to be fast track, there used to be other programs, but breakthrough therapy is now... Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, yes, breaking the sound barrier and breakthrough therapy are kind of <laughs> similar. So I was concerned. I knew that we met the qualifications for breakthrough therapy, but I was concerned that the FDA might not give it to us because it's very public. And the fact that we have this agreement letter for the special protocol assessment, that was the crucial thing that gave us the sense, yes, we can go forward to phase three with this design but breakthrough therapy gives a lot of other advantages. And so we applied for breakthrough therapy. And I think I just want to highlight the fact that the FDA has not only... Um, uh, actually, th there was uh, planes buzzing on Tuesday night. I don't know if you saw that too. It's, it's $10,000 an hour just for the gas. <laughs> so... And these are military planes, so um, or at least we do have friends in the DOT. Um, so we applied for breakthrough therapy, and as of August fifteenth, 
FDA said yes, they've granted us breakthrough. It's, it, um, so they have demonstrated courage, not just a focus on science, but a political courage to do that in such a public way. And we decided that we would not make that public, but we gave a uh, exclusive to the Washington Post to report it. And so last Sunday, the Sunday of Burning Man starting, it was front page of the Washington Post that FDA had granted breakthrough therapy. Yeah. Um, and we also had an article in Science. But for our political strategy, we're now working on an article for Breitbart.com. <laughs> and it's crucial that we do that. It's really, we've had articles in military.com, Stars and Stripes, the Navy SEALs website, um, redstate.com. Really, we need to be building bipartisan support. And so we, and we are doing that. And things are really moving forward in a great way. So now that we have breakthrough, now that we have um, the special protocol assessment, um, we're going forward starting as soon as we get back from Burning Man in September and October, we're starting a protocol that's not the phase three study itself, but it's called a phase two open label study. And the primary purpose is for the training of the therapists. So basically, we're embarking on a $25 million experiment. And what will determine whether this works or not is the MDMA itself, we're spending a million dollars to get uh, medical-grade MDMA and stick it in capsules, which shouldn't be that hard or that expensive, but meeting FDA standards. And we have to produce the, the pharmaceutical drug that we would um, market after approval and use that in phase three. So you're sort of jump-starting a lot of expenses to do that. But what we've been able to do, it really will depend upon a lot of the therapists and how well they operate with the patients. We do think from our early phase two research that the drug is more important than the therapy. And that's what we showed, 23% after the therapy, but up to 61% after three with the MDMA. So the problem with our program of training therapists has been that the way you train therapists is they work with patients and you get supervision and then you give them feedback and they work with more patients but because we're using an illegal drug the only way that we can actually have them work with patients is in the context of a protocol and so we worked with FDA and we said we want this phase two protocol no double blind it's for gathering safety data, but it's primarily for the purpose of training these new therapists. So Cole will be one of them. We have a bunch of others. We have 40 male-female co-therapist teams. We've trained about 80 people, 40 teams at 14 different sites throughout the United States, uh, Israel, and Canada. And some of these therapists have worked on phase two, but a lot of them have not. So every new co-therapy team is going to be able to work with one patient under direct supervision and that's going to take us that's going to cost us about another million dollars but i think that's like an insurance policy that will really have all these therapy teams ready to go and in april of 2018 we're going to be starting the phase three study and we anticipate that by the end of 2019 early 2020 we will have completed treating all the patients and we'll have the data to start negotiating with fda and we think by 2021, we'll have MDMA approved as a prescription medicine. <laughs> um, 
And there are uh, other groups, the Hefter um, USONA group that S- Steve is part of, Steve Ross from NYU, and others that they're going to be working to medicalize psilocybin. And so more and more we're um, sharing staff, sharing our insights with the FDA. So just as the way we talk about psychedelics producing the sense of unity, the psychedelic researchers are now at a new stage of unity. Um, we have some disagreements about how much we should criticize the drug war, but those are kind of less important than all the ways in which we're sharing information and sharing skills. So we think by 2021 we'll be able to have psychedelic clinics. People will be trained, cross-trained for both MDMA and psilocybin. They can also be working with ketamine, which is already being used for depression. Most of the time ketamine is used without therapy. It's just as a pharmacological treatment, and so there'll probably be ways to add more therapy in these clinics. But there's because we have breakthrough, because there's such an enormous need for the treatment of PTSD, we have 18,000 people have contacted us on their website to be notified when the PTSD study starts because they want to volunteer for the study. 18,000 people already have come to us. So there's a tremendous need. And what the FDA has another program, which is called Expanded Access. And the, the Republicans have, have loved this program, and they've done a lot that's called Right to Try. So it's, in a way, part of a libertarian approach. It's a deregulation approach. But the basic idea is that if you have any kind of condition and the currently available medicines have not helped you, and there is a medicine for your condition that's being reviewed by the FDA, but the review hasn't completed, you should have a right to try those drugs. And so there's 25 states or so that have passed these right-to-try laws. But the FDA already has this expanded access program. And what that means is that if your phase three studies are filled up and there's no waiting list, you're moving forward as quickly as possible, all these, I, I mean, you have a waiting list. All these people on the waiting list can go into expanded access, which means they can pay for the therapy. The pharmaceutical company sponsor can only charge the cost of the drug. You can't make a profit. They don't want companies making a profit before it's approved. But you can get your cost recovered. And so it's possible and likely, I think, that by the summer to the end of 2019, we're going to train a whole bunch of new therapists, particularly to be working in cities where we're not having phase three sites. And they can then treat people on an expanded access basis. And we will be gathering safety information, but not efficacy, because, again, there's no double blind. So it won't count for how the FDA decides whether to approve the drug, but it will um, develop our safety database and also make the drug available. Um, The question is, where are our phase three sites? Um, We have sites in Vancouver, in Montreal, um, two sites in San Francisco, one site in L.A., a site in New Orleans, a site in Boulder, a site in Fort Collins, a site at... Uh, Madison in Madison, Wisconsin, two sites in New York, the University of Connecticut, um, one site in Charleston, South Carolina, and then um, we're still trying to figure out one or two sites in Israel, definitely outside of Tel Aviv, uh, at least one site and maybe two. Um, Okay, yes, yes, there's loads of PTSD in San Diego and um, loads of military people, but we, we... what we're doing is we're building everything around the therapists. The therapists are the crucial thing. So 
and, and also we wanted cities where there were a lot of PTSD and also potential donors in some of the cities. Um, so it was strategically chosen for multiple reasons. So San Diego would be like an expanded access site because we've got enough um, people trained for phase three. All right. Yeah. Ah, okay. So the question is, where would you re refer a therapist to be trained? Well, if you go to the MAPS website, and um, there's a section uh, that says, um, menu bar says participate, there's a way for therapists to sign up to be on the mailing list. And so what we think is that our therapy training team, the most important thing that they're going to be doing starting in this um, open label phase two study and then in the early stages of phase three is going to be watching the videotapes and giving feedback to the therapists about how they're doing. And so near the end of 2018 is when we think we're going to start training for expanded access. And as part of the training, just to say it's um, two week-long in-person sessions. The first week is looking at our treatment manual, which is on the website, to see how we describe the therapy, and then mostly watching videotapes of therapy sessions. The second week is more videotapes, more talking about the treatment manual, but also we've done holotropic breath work to, to help everybody sort of experience non-ordinary states and also work on teamwork and role play for teamwork. And um, in addition to that, we went to the FDA and we said we really feel that there's a missing link here is that when you want to study yoga, you go to a yoga teacher who's practiced yoga. You want to study meditation, you go to a meditator a teacher who meditates, but when you want to go to a psychedelic therapist, ideally you'd want to go to one that's done the psychedelics. But unless we have somehow a legal permission to give MDMA to the therapist, we're not going to be able to train them properly. And so the FDA said, we understand your situation. We can't just give you permission to give MDMA to a therapist, but if you design a scientific protocol that gathers some information, and we don't care what, We'll, we'll let you limit who volunteers for your study to therapists in your training program. So about five years ago, we got that. And we've treated over 30 people from all over the world now. We can bring in people to give them an MDMA session. And then the last is working under supervision. So somewhere near end of 2018, we'll start the training programs again. Yeah. Yes, there's a EMDR, which is eye movement um, desensitization and reprogramming. There's, um, there's a variety of techniques for um, the treatment of PTSD. Some are called prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, cognitive behavioral. We can use elements of those. We don't ever use EMDR. We don't use guided imagery. The, the core aspect of our method is a respect for what we're sort of calling the inner healer. So what, what we say is, and what we all know is you hurt your body and your body knows how to heal itself. We don't know how to do it. Somehow there's some wisdom in here that uh, you know heals the scratch or heals the broken bone. And we are assuming that there's something similar in the psyche and that there's impediments that, per, that block the healing process and repetitive patterns and fears and all sorts of cultural programming that get in the way. But the thought is that under the influence of psychedelics, 
MDMA, LSD, ayahuasca, that there's an emergence into awareness from the unconscious that is more individually designed according to what you really need and that it's the job of the therapist not to be the guide. We don't use, a lot of people say, I'll, I'll be your guide. We don't use the word guide because that implies somehow that the therapists know where to go and really it's the patient's unconscious. So we support that process. Yeah. It kind of feels back to onion. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's helpful, um, but but when you're doing research too, you have to have one intervention so you can say that's what did it, and then the so if we were to combine EMDR, all of these things, then the question would be why? What what was the effective part? And what we have to show is that the therapy that we do without the MDMA is fundamentally enhanced by the therapy with MDMA. But once it's a prescription medicine, and again, the only people that are going to be able to prescribe it are people that have been through our training program. That's going to be a requirement of the FDA. But once it's approved and people have been trained in our method, then they're free to modify it however they want. So let's say you wanted to do EMDR while somebody was under the influence of MDMA. You could do that. Yeah. Uh, you might not need it. There, there was a, um, the military has been doing a lot of work with virtual reality. And they will present kind of uh, scenes to people who've been traumatized. But the advantage is you can sort of shut it off when you want. And they try to make it somewhat similar to what people had. There was a conference in Israel in 2009 with a woman uh, with PT it was PTSD. And there was a woman, Edna Foa, who developed prolonged exposure, which is one of the main treatments for PTSD. And she's kind of old school. And she's like, why are you using MDMA? It's like dynamite in the brain. You know, she she didn't know the difference between LSD or MDMA, and she was scared of all of it. And so, and she just said, um, you know, try something like virtual reality. And there was a guy, Skip Rizzo, funded by the military to develop virtual reality for PTSD, and he was at the conference. So I went to talk to him, and I said, you know, Edna tells me, forget about MDMA, I should try virtual reality for PTSD. So how's it going with you? And, and he laughed, and he said, if you have MDMA, you don't need virtual reality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. It, MDMA really is more specifically localized to your own emotions. It's personally customized and it reduces the fear. <laughs> yeah. You, you see? Yeah. So I, I think that we are. Um, on the track towards making it into a medicine. We will have this opportunity in 2019 for this expanded access. And then the key issues, once it's approved, so this is the kind of challenges where we still have negotiations to go with FDA and how we imagine that. So the first thing that we're going to negotiate, the FDA wants to know the commercialization plan is how many therapists are going to be trained, what's the number of patients, what's the amount of MDMA, all of that. Bonnie? Uh, Rick, referring back to your mentioning of the right to try, and we've got 18,000 people interested in the study, and um, additional therapists would be trained um, outside of the study to for who where is the funding for that is that 
FDA funding for the training for those therapists, or no. is that MAPS? That's MAPS. Yeah, so no, no, MAPS FDA okay. funds yeah. the critique, not okay. the creation. Uh, okay, so, um, okay, I understand. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so we're going to have to be, and, and so at some point, once there's a real field that people can practice, we'll be charging for the training. Right, right now, we ask people to donate their time, but we cover all the expenses of their travel, the room and board. There's no charge for the training. Thank you. So, again, just in terms of your approval and your post-approval strategy, um, I've heard a lot about clinical trials, open-label extensions, uh, which are fantastic, of course, high-quality evidence, but very expensive. Uh, and given two things, first off, given that MAPS is a nonprofit with limited resources, yeah. and given FDA's increasing openness to real-world data and observational data under Purdue Fest 6, I'm curious if you guys have thought about observational or real-world data studies uh, on three fronts. So first off, potential label expansions once you do receive approval for moderate to severe PTSD. Uh, second, post-marketing safety commitments. And third, uh, potentially payer evidence down the road. Yes. Those are all really crucial questions. So I'll start with payer evidence. So we, are, we tried to negotiate with Kaiser to have one of our sites in Oakland be at Kaiser. So um, ultimately it did not work, but Kaiser will be referring patients to us. So the key point is that when you have PTSD, um, the stress of that causes all sorts of other health consequences. And PTSD patients are expensive to the insurers. So we're working with the head of um, pharmacoeconomics at Harvard Medical School who's helped us put some measures of healthcare utilization in the clinical trials. But it's not going to be enough because it's only short term. So you need sort of long term data like that. So we are trying to put into place mechanisms because the key point, uh, again, with insurance is there's a lot of people that cannot afford this treatment but need it. And most of the people that need it can't afford it. And so to really roll it out, we're going to have to persuade insurance companies to cover it. And so that, that's really crucial. The idea of label extensions and observational studies um, that's going to be part of this very um, important negotiations about off-label prescriptions. And so that's, I think, one of the top negotiating items that we still have to go. What, what off-label prescriptions mean is the drug is prescribed. Um, you do the research for one thing. The key, FDA is already asking us to work on the label. The label is what sort of is, goes on the bottle, what says this drug is for this thing. And these are the side effects and these are the concerns, but it's approved for this thing, which will be PTSD. And insurance will cover that. But we've also done small, not observational studies, but small phase two pilot studies with um, autistic adults with social anxiety. And we've gotten tremendous results on the reduction of social anxiety. And we've done studies with uh, MDMA for life-threatening illnesses, people who are anxious about dying. And there's a whole host of uses that we're even thinking about for anorexia, for um, body image, for um, racial trauma, trauma from sexual identity, for just outright depression and anxiety. There's a whole host of things. So the key question is going to be to what extent will FDA permit us to do off-label? And how does it interact with um, what people are doing in underground settings? 
Also, I'm thinking further to get approval for those additional indications. So, for instance, right. in the right. oncology space, where there are a lot of breakthrough therapy designations, um, FDA is somewhat more open to more innovative trial designs. For instance, using historical controls where you just treat one arm and then you use essentially observational data from pre-existing trials uh, to augment those data, yeah. again, in the interest of speed and efficiency. Um, yeah. So, again, just innovative approaches to expand the universe of uh, potential treatments. Yeah. No, th those are what we are going to be engaging FDA in negotiations with. The, the problem and the difference, I would say, with oncology drugs is we've got a Schedule One drug that's widely used by in recreational settings. So there may be some pushback that we get from FDA and certainly from DEA about off-label prescriptions. But fr from a historical point of view, in 1986, when Marinol, the oral THC pill, was approved as a medicine, the DEA said they didn't want anybody prescribing it for anything else other than nausea control for cancer chemotherapy, which was what was on the label. And they have to publish these rules in the Federal Register, and there's 30 days to comment. And so the American Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association, the AMA, and other groups objected to the limitation of off-label prescription on the basis that this was a Schedule One drug. And the DEA had to withdraw the ruling. So there's really a precedent that even though it's a Schedule One drug, off-label should not be restricted. But then, this is where we sort of touch in uh, observational studies. So if somebody prescribes it for something other than, MD, for other than PTSD, we would like to know what are they prescribing it for. And, and so there may be some um, negotiation that goes forward where off-label is permitted, but there's some kind of data gathering process so that if there's enough examples of MDMA being used for other things, either that will trigger us to do another either phase three or phase two study, but we'll sort of, I think, as the expansion of off-label prescription, there'll be some sort of quasi-observational studies going on within that context. I think that's how, to, how it'll do it. Um, and then oh, we, we would love to... Okay, where are you located? Or? Okay, well, let, let's talk afterwards because, yeah, I think that's really crucial. Yeah. As founder of the Chicago Healthcare Ventures, we invest in healthcare companies. One of the markets we're looking at is behavior health, and it's chaotic. Um, so as an entrepreneur, I, one of my visions is to open up an MDMA treatment center, Great. which is going to be a couple years out. So what do you recommend how I can get involved today? Well, Ooh. I, I would say that... Um, one of the things you could get involved today with is to think about opening up a ketamine clinic. And you can talk to Cole, Cole about that because that's something you can implement today. Um, the other thing is to think about what other treatments would be good for people, massage, uh, flotation tanks, um, different kind of counseling. And so you could open up a center like that. But I think the other thing is to consider trying to um, – locate people who you think would be or yourself would be good therapists and then get them in, in line for us to be starting to train them. So I, I think the important point here is that there um, is likely to be um, requirements that MDMA is only administered in these clinical settings and never as a take-home drug. And that we'll eventually have thousands of these all across America. And that we're going to want to, MAPS will do a few of them to sort of set a standard of care, but we want loads of other people to set up their own clinics. So I think um, 
building contacts with people in the PTSD research community in Chicago that's where you're at um, um, getting trying to think about being a um, expanded access site so I think the main thing is the training to be therapists getting therapists who could go through the training you can think about the economics of a clinic center um, starting I think with ketamine and then eventually it'll expand uh, you know you get ketamine flotation tanks and massage and then you just naturally roll it out to MDMA and psilocybin. Yeah. But that's great because really it's about trying to – we want to do everything in a nonprofit context, but there's lots of opportunities for for-profit companies and businesses to be established, and we want to encourage that. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to one of your other questions, though, which is expanding the label. So this is going to be a surprise, I think, to all of you. But um, the FDA is requiring us to do studies in adolescents with PTSD. It's not that we had to argue to the FDA. There's a bunch of people. We, we, actually, we actually had a, um, a mother, when we were doing the first MDMA study, um, say that her daughter had been raped at a young age and was mute. And she was only 16. Uh, she, it was earlier, but she was 16 at the time. And so we applied to the FDA for uh, an exception to enroll her in the study. And the FDA said no. We had to complete the study in adults first. But there are so many drugs that are approved by the FDA that are being used off-label in kids that the FDA now, unless there's some real toxicity issue, like sometimes with cancer drugs, they're requiring sponsors to come up with a plan for doing study in adolescence. So we're, we're actually requesting a waiver to do we, that we don't have to do studies between zero and 11 ages, and the methods of measuring PTSD are not validated in those ages anyway, but we're going to be proposing 12 to 17. We can already go down to 18. And we've negotiated successfully that we don't have to start that study until after the drug is approved. So there will be another series of discussions and negotiations with FDA on additional studies. The other question that the FDA is going to want us to address is what about the fact that we have three MDMA sessions, we have these 40 hours of therapy, but some people might need a fourth session. And some people might be successfully treated for their PTSD, but then five years later some other traumatic incident happens and then they got PTSD again. So we're going to have to be looking at, in some negotiated form with the FDA, about what do we do about additional sessions beyond what we've studied, and then also what do we do about sort of people who relapse and how do we give them sessions. So those will be part of our phase four commitments to be starting to look at that. And I think that um, from what we've seen from FDA and also what we know from DEA, that this is like a dream for them compared to medical marijuana. Medical marijuana is a nightmare because, from their regulatory control perspective, because people get a month's supply, they go home and they do it, and they can give it to their friends, and who knows where it goes, and does it stay medical or not. But with MDMA, with psilocybin, with ketamine, they're only administered by the therapist or the doctors under direct supervision. So a lot of these uh, regulatory issues are going to be relatively easy for us to address because we do believe that the therapeutic component needs to be provided at the same time. Yeah. So 
So on that, um, you know, you said in the past, and I've long subscribed to this, your, your idea mm-hmm. and, you know, your vision of the psychedelic centers and this idea yeah. Of, yeah. of getting a license. But you just mentioned that you think that maybe it won't be available, you know, for take-home use. But So, okay. so where do you okay. stand okay. Okay. On, your, on your psychedelic license? Because okay. okay, yes. Great. Thank you for that. Okay, so let's say we got these, uh, you know, behavioral health centers. One thing we're doing right now with the F, with the VA, so we've, you know, uh, there is, um, so far the VA has not formally wanted to work with us, but they've been very interested in tracking what's going on with MDMA, and through the intervention of Senator Rockefeller, who was on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, and Richard Rockefeller, his cousin, who is head of um, the Board of Advisors on Doctors Without Borders, we've had a series of negotiations with the Department of Defense and the VA. And out of that came this sense that um, if we funded studies with VA-affiliated therapists, they would permit them to do these studies. The therapists would do them with their academic affiliations, not their VA affiliations. And the first one they wanted us to start was a, a method of therapy called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. So conjoint means couples therapy. So it's couples therapy where one member has PTSD and it affects the relationship. And so they engage both members of the couple in the therapy. So we said, that's great, we'll fund that, let's do that. But then we went to the FDA and we said, we would like to give both members of the couple MDMA, not just the PTSD patient. And the FDA said yes. So this is now the first time that we have a non-patient receiving MDMA in a therapeutic study. So what we're thinking of with the clinics, let's say um, that you will be treating the patients, but you will also be able to expand to treat some of the family members who are affected by it. Then eventually when the culture, and sir, this is the big picture, when eventually the culture gets more comfortable, there'll be people that want personal growth experiences that are not patients. And so one way to ease into a culture that is very, you could say, traumatized and scared about psychedelics in large ways is to think about um, these centers as like sites of initiation. So, for example, I have three kids, 22, 21, and 18. They've all had to go through driver's ed. They all had to have um, a certain number of hours that they had to drive with their parents in the car. They had to take a certain amount of um, education. And then they had to actually be supervised by somebody who came in the car with them to see if they were ready to get their license to drive. So similarly, as we move towards um, legalization outside of medical context, outside of religious contexts, We'll have, I believe, the opportunity to have people who want to go and get a psychedelic experience to go to one of these behavioral health centers or there and have an experience under supervision. And if they don't have any kind of a crisis or any problem, then they get a license to buy it on their own and to do in any circumstance anywhere. So I think that is a, a step toward. So initially it's only designated patients, then it becomes family members, then it becomes people who want you know, personal growth in these centers, and then it becomes people who want licenses to go buy it and do it on their own at Burning Man or, or wherever. 
So I, I think that um, it's hard to say, but my guess is that somewhere like 2024 will have marijuana legalization on a federal level. I mean, nobody can say for sure, but I think something like 2024. Uh, if we get psychedelics medicalized in 2021 for some conditions, I think by you know the rollout, by 10 years after that, we'll probably have several thousand clinics. And then we'll have also um, experience on a federal level for about a decade or so with marijuana legalization. So I think in 2035, more or less, um, we should have a culture that's ready to end prohibition for psychedelics and hopefully for all the other drugs as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that actually becomes a, 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 another business opportunity because it's not just patients, not just their families, but it could be all sorts of people who want psychedelic treatments under supervision or psychedelic experience is a better way to say it. Yeah. You had the statistics on how many people have reached out, like 18,000 are interested in. Yeah. Do you also know how many therapists are interested in being trained? And the second part of that question is, did you say 2018 was probably the next possible time to start getting trained through MAPS? Well, the end, yeah. So I think near the end of 2018 is when we'll open up the treatment pro, the training therapy program for people training for um, expanded access. I think we already have about 1,600 therapists who've contacted us to be notified when the training program starts. And we've developed a model, which we call our sustainability model, that calls for us to have 300 therapists trained by 2021. So we've already got about 90 or so. Well, between now and the end of 2018, we're not training anymore. But, I mean, by 2021, when it becomes a medicine, we want to have 300, and then we want to train at least 300 every year after that. So that at the end of 10 years, there's 3,000 people that therapists have been trained, and hopefully there'll be 3,000 or so psychedelic treatment centers. So we actually probably need to train more than that. Okay, so um, for those of you who didn't hear, the, the California Institute for Integral Studies has a program that's a certificate program to train people for psychedelic therapy and research. Um, it's not a degree program, but it's a what they call a certificate program because you just pay to get into it. Um, I think it's very helpful. And what we've done is we've taken the first week of the MDMA training, which is this week-long watching videotapes and understanding our treatment manual and Michael and Annie Midhover, we've made it a part of the CIS training. So everybody that goes to the CIS certificate program gets part B, we call it. Part A is uh, 12 hours of online information that people need to do. Then they can go into part A, which we have then um, integrated into the CIS program. But that doesn't mean that everybody that graduates from CIS program will be hired by us to be a therapist. They have to go through our entire program. But, um, and those people that want to go and get degrees in therapy at CIS have the added opportunity of a lot of classes directly related to psychedelic psychotherapy. And what we're working on with CIS, um, I mentioned how we have the ability to give MDMA to therapists as part of their training. So we're working on developing a protocol with CIS so that it would be for their students in this program 
and they would receive one dose of MDMA and later a dose of psilocybin too. So we're thinking of them as sort of cross-training for psychedelic therapists. And I think the CIS program is very important for that. Um, yes? Okay, so I have a question about, um, I've heard that SSRIs and MDMA don't mix, and I was wondering, like I have family with drug-resistant depression. Uh, I was wondering if you have some sort of like protocol. Like I, I figure a lot of like p- people with PTSD are also on dep- antidepressants yes, already. Yes. So yeah. do you get them off for a little bit, or what is it like yeah. with that? Yeah, so um, what we feel is that um, the SSRIs mute the effect of MDMA. So we require people to withdraw, not just from SSRIs, but from all psychiatric medications that they're on. And so it depends on which one they're on. So it's five half-lives of whatever the medicine is plus a week. And that's how long the withdrawal process has to be before we let them into the study. And in a way, this is one of the hardest parts of the study because these are now people that are... um, taking the drugs that have not really cured their PTSD. They still have severe to extreme PTSD, but it's been helping them somewhat, and they have to stop doing those medicines. So there's a period of time where their symptoms are going to come to the surface, and they actually may feel worse. And so what we tell people is this is an important part of the process. You're unmasking all of these feelings that you've kept muted, but it hasn't really done you that much good. And so we have to have close supervision while... They're being monitored by their prescribing psychiatrist for all these medications if they're on them, but they're also in touch with our therapy team. And surprisingly, though, we find that some people say they feel better once they're off the drugs than before. And part of it is that the drugs have side effects, didn't work that well. The other part is they're now hoping, they've got their hope again, that there's some new treatment. So we've actually had to do a lot of thinking with the FDA about where is our baseline measure is the baseline measure of their PTSD symptoms when they come to us on their SSRIs, and this is how they are, this is what the treatment that they've had available has produced in them, or is the baseline measure after they've withdrawn from the drugs and are now ready to start the study. So what the FDA said they wanted us to do, which is fine with us, is that the baseline measure of PTSD is going to be after they've withdrawn from all their other medications. So there's a bunch of people that are not going to be willing to do that. And we're finding that we have a a marijuana PTSD study in Phoenix, Arizona, funded by $2.1 million from all the pot smokers in Colorado. So uh, they have a $10 million. They have made so much money on the taxes. They put out $10 million for research. And we're finding that some of the people that have PTSD that already use marijuana are reluctant to give it up in order to be in the study because we need to get them back to kind of a baseline, what is their PTSD, and then they can enter the study. So I think it's going to be a challenge, but many people realize that the sort of holding pattern that they're in is not getting them where they want, and and so we provide a lot of support as they taper off their medicines. Yeah. Yeah. Medicine is really a band-aid. It's a true story. Even smoking weed, it's just like it, it mutes it so you don't have to deal with it. So once once everything's gone, that's what you're really dealing with. <laughs> and you can't know that until you take the rest of it out. And it was hard to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in a way, it really requires courage on a pot of patients to face 
to, to not only let go of the other drugs that they're on, but then be willing to face what comes up. So we need to honor sort of the courage. And for those people that aren't ready to do that, it's fine if they want to stay on the medicines or it's fine if they want to use marijuana. We also require people to stop marijuana to be in the study. Because, again, we can have only one intervention at a time. Yeah. Yes? Uh, for the uh, like therapist teams, is there going to have to be like a um, like a psychiatrist on it, or like a someone to like write the prescription, or can it be you know two people who have like therapy degrees to uh, do it? And a second question is, what's the brand name going to be? It's <laughs> really funny. Um, well, I'll, I'll do the, um, the harder question first. <laughs> so, um, the DEA will only give doctors a schedule one license to work with the schedule one drug so every of our 14 sites have to have a doctor that's got the dea schedule one license however the dea permits the schedule one license holder to transfer that authority to administer to other people so in our boulder study um, the principal investigator was a psychologist the Schedule One license holder was the doctor, and several of the therapy teams were only a psychologist and a student. So you do not need to even have a doctor in the room when you're doing the therapy. But the doctor has to do the medical evaluations, has to be responsible if there's a medical crisis, but the therapy doesn't have to be only by psychiatrists or only by doctors or even only by licensed psychotherapists or social workers. We're having nurses, but we're also having students that don't have any licenses uh, at all. And so this sort of gets back to the clinic model. You, you may have one Schedule One license holder that operates the clinic, and then a bunch of therapists that work under their supervision and direction. And then our goal is to have both the Schedule One license holder, at this point it would be Schedule Two, but for research Schedule One, um, and also the people that are in touch with the patients, all of which would need to be through our training program. So just to clarify, so you have these teams, and one member of the team could be an unlicensed person who just has interest in doing this? Well, we we call that the Rick Doblin loophole. (laughs) Because... Because I want to be a therapist, and I'm not so sure I want to go through years and years of formal training. So I'll need to find a female therapist with a uh, a license to be a therapist or even a social worker, and I'll just need to be a partner. So, yeah, one person doesn't need any license at all because therapists. And they can do the MAPS training. They can be students. We've already trained a bunch of students. Because, again, it's really unorthodox to have two therapists. But when you have an eight-hour session, and I'll I'll say one thing also, which is that our goal, our our primary strategy has been to maximize therapeutic outcomes. And this gets back to your question about, you know, insurance coverage and how that's going to happen. We're not looking to figure out what's the least amount of therapy that can get somebody without PTSD by the the fewest number of sessions. And that's really important, and we have to figure that out for widespread implementation. But for the approval process, 
really we need as robust of the outcomes as we can get to get over all the political concerns about MDMA. So we are just insisting on this two-therapist model. But once it's approved, um, it might not need to be two therapists either. So, but And if it's just one therapist, then they would need to have some sort of license as a therapy. But if you're part of a two-person team, the second person could be anybody. And, and we found that a lot of the therapists really see the value in the two-therapy team. They don't often do that. They don't do that in their practice. But it, it's a, it's, you know, and there's a lot of times where the patient would rather talk to a male or a female, depending on the issues. So I, I really think that kind of model really works well and it creates a, a, an added sense of safety and insights and so and seeing a successful partnership too is really helpful for a lot of the patients who've lost trust who've been traumatized so um so one day i will be able to be a legal psychedelic therapist even without going back to school <laughs> yeah Um, piggy, piggybacking on that, Rick. Hi, how you doing? Um, I don't know if Maps or you know your organization are taking steps. You know, you you're saying some of your patients prefer either a male or a female to speak to, um, but uh, uh, tra- yeah, training therapists of color as well for like people who you know you said you, they might feel safer with certain people that yeah. that decide. So um, I don't know if that's part of uh, the curriculum as well or part of like the process that you all are doing as well. What part do you mean about being... Um, getting like people of color, psychedelic oh, therapists as yes. well, and dealing with racial trauma and that kind yeah, of thing. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We're, um, w- the University of Connecticut site will likely be people with PTSD from racial trauma. Um, one of the things that really surprised us and disappointed us was that of the veterans that applied to be in the study, there's an awful lot of veterans who are uh, from minority groups. But we didn't have a single veteran in our study from a minority group. And I just thought automatically, because there's so many veterans from minority communities, that we'd have a a representative sample. And so once we realized that that didn't happen, now we've started to figure out that we need to do more active outreach to minority uh, communities. There's a lot of distrust of the medical establishment. Um, in the African American community, they know about the Tuskegee experiments where you know people had syphilis, but they weren't treated. They were just tracked to see what happens with their disorder. So there's a lot of distrust, and um, so we're having to do an extra step to try to reach out to African American therapists and patients. Um, you know, there's transgender trauma, so we're reaching out to those populations. But I, I think what surprised me is that. We're offering a very safe setting with very trained therapists, and yet still no minority people were willing to volunteer for the study. So that, that's a big issue. I mean, look around here, too. I mean, it's psychedelic. Burning Man is white. The psychedelic community is mostly white. There's, there are other minorities, but it's not much African Americans. And so I think there, there's a way in which, I guess the way I explain it, is there's a way in which you become defenseless under psychedelics. You are letting your ego fall apart. You're, you're defenseless. And if you're feeling that the world itself is prejudiced against you, you know, you're, you're going to be reluctant, I think, to enter into these defenseless states. 
And so that, that's for me maybe the, the best ex, uh, explanation of why people who need help, who aren't adequately helped by what's available, are still not volunteering for our studies. So I'd say that is a particular challenge that we're going to have to address, and um, I don't think we have successfully addressed it yet. I've seen some research that MDMA could possibly result in um, cognitive defect side effects. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us more about your understanding of that? Yeah. Um, so um, the research that began in the early 1980s into uh, neurotoxicity of MDMA and proceeded through the, the 80s and 90s and sort of reached its peak in the 2000s um, the only functional consequence that has been uh, demonstrated in some of these studies of ecstasy users has been um, somewhat poor uh, neurocognitive performance, memory tests, things like that, in people that are heavy ecstasy users. So um, the question is, does that happen in a therapeutic context? And also, is that research really rigorously designed enough to say it happens from MDMA. So first off, we know ecstasy is um, around half the time it has no MDMA in it at all anyway. Ecstasy in Molly doesn't mean it's really MDMA. But to answer your question, and because I feel it's essential that MAPS become the expert on the risks as well as the benefits, that we become trusted authority on the risks, um, there's a methodological challenge in that the studies of ecstasy users and then comparing them with controls. First off, what did they take? But secondly, they've taken loads of other drugs. And so how do you separate it out? And also, what causes somebody uh, to volunteer for some of these studies? So there was an astrophysicist who was a member of MAPS. He sent me an email, and he said, I have the solution to how you design a study to figure out the neurocognitive consequences of heavy ecstasy use. And we were like, great, what, what's the solution? He said, well, there's a population of people that I'm aware of that have done large amounts of MDMA or ecstasy, but they haven't done marijuana, they haven't done alcohol, they haven't done caffeine, they haven't done a host of other drugs. So maybe you can guess, these are Mormons. <laughs> there's a, so we call it our fallen Mormon study <laughs> for rebellious Mormons. And there was a period of time before the Mormon church had declared MDMA part of the drugs you shouldn't do that there was not even a prohibition inside Mormonism to use these drugs. So I um, gave a $15,000 grant. MAPS gave $15,000 to uh, researchers at Harvard's McLean Hospital who have the expertise in neurocognitive consequences of recreational drugs. They've done studies with marijuana, with peyote, um, with cocaine. And so... They went out to Utah, and they did a small pilot study and discovered that this group really existed. And they used the pilot data and submitted it to the National Institute on Drug Abuse and got a $1.8 million grant. So this is a NIDA-funded, Harvard-conducted study, catalyzed by MAPS, but then we weren't in it at all. And so it's by Dr. John Halpern, H-A-L-P-E-R-N, and there's a whole bunch of papers discussing it in Medline. And so what they found is when you do a rigorous study with people that don't have all these other confounds, that they really didn't find any evidence of significant 
neurocognitive consequences. So there, there's debates about, you know, critics are saying, oh, they found some little things, but you'll see in the scientific literature that it's very reassuring. So for what we had to do for FDA, and this gets more to the question of the therapeutic use, is in two of our different studies, so that we would replicate the results, we did a series of neurocognitive tests before as a baseline and then after people had had several MDMA sessions. Um, that was in our Boulder study and in our first study in Charleston. And we found no evidence of any neurocognitive decline from only a few doses of MDMA, nor would we anticipate that there would be such a thing. So I think we have to recognize that there, just in the same way is that people who take MDMA in a rave setting or, or you're in Burning Man dance all night and don't get adequate fluids, you can have problems in a recreational setting that are not replicated in a clinical setting. And at the same time, one of the key um, negotiations with FDA is going to be whether there's a lifetime limit that is placed on the number of MDMA sessions we can give people, sort of relating to cumulative toxicity, if that is a concern. Um, so that negotiation has not yet happened. The FDA might not even require that. But it's our view that, um, you know, I've taken MDMA about 125 times. Um, that's not that much when you think I first started in 1982. <laughs> but um, I, I don't feel personally damaged by it. Maybe I wouldn't notice. <laughs> yeah, you know. But the, the evidence of neurocognitive consequences is pretty weak. And the, the research is, is quite confounded by other variables. And the best study that you'll see um, suggests that it's not likely to be a problem. But from the FDA's point of view, in phase two, with these two neurocognitive studies, we don't even have to address the question anymore. So in phase three, we are not doing neurocognitive studies before and after three doses of MDMA. It's not even a concern. So um, how many of you have heard the, the research that was about um, 2003 came out about MDMA causing Parkinson's and hurting dopamine? Yeah, that was from NIDA, NIDA-funded studies that were done um, at Johns Hopkins with um, primates, and they ended up publishing in Science. And the editor of Science said that um, taking MDMA was like Russian roulette, that you would eventually you know, do major damage, and it was a real risky thing. And then this article claimed that MDMA hurt dopamine. It just didn't make sense to us. They treated a bunch of primates, they killed a bunch of them. We knew from prior studies that primates did not die from MDMA at that dosage. They didn't give it orally the way people take it. So we challenged them. They, their science was willing to publish a letter to the editor by us challenging those uh, findings. And so the researchers, unbeknownst to us, tried to replicate their findings and to replicate them oral administration. And they couldn't they couldn't find, they couldn't replicate their results. And they kept doing different things where they would uh, increase the temperature of the animals. They would increase the crowding of the animals. They would increase the frequency of the MDMA. They would increase the, the doses. And they absolutely could not replicate this damage to dopamine. And they were so mystified. Now, this took them like a, a year and a half or so. And the whole time, they're still standing by their study. MDMA is dangerous, causes Parkinson's. But quietly, unbeknownst to, to us, they were having a failure to replicate. And as a desperation move, they 
did an autopsy in one of the animals and discovered that they had been giving the animal methamphetamine instead of MDMA. And then they tracked it back, and they had gotten a bottle of MDMA and a bottle of methamphetamine shipped to Hopkins on the same day, and they blamed the supplier, Research Triangle Institute, for switching the labels on the bottles. The supplier said, absolutely not. They don't do that. That's not what happened. NIDA never did a formal study. There's never been a, what's really happened. But that was the high point of the uh, fears, exaggerated fears about the neurotoxicity of MDMA. And so ever since then, it's not been much of a problem. And I think, sort of to summarize, that you can do too much MDMA. And if you do it too frequently, you do too high of doses, uh, the main concern I've seen is that people who are looking for MDMA to enhance their emotions, to feel more deeper, the more you do it, the more frequently you do it, you end up muting your emotions. And again, it's this concept of the experience and the integration of the experience. And so in a psychotherapeutic setting, the experience is only one part. The other part is what you bring back to make the benefits, to make the experiences long-lasting. And we find that in recreational settings where people aren't necessarily thinking about that, what matters is the experience, but not what they learn from it and what they bring it back. So they keep trying to have the experience over and over and over, and eventually they get a tolerance, they need higher doses. But the beautiful thing about MDMA, unlike drugs that you get addicted to, like cocaine, like opiates, like amphetamines even, is that with MDMA, once you get a tolerance to it, if you up the dose, it doesn't bring back the feeling. You get more of the amphetamine, more of the anxious parts of it. So the people who are sort of wanting that kind of dependence end up burning out and after a year or so give it up. So we have people that have been you know, dependent on opiate for decades, dependent on cocaine for long periods of time, but you rarely have people that are heavy ecstasy users for more than a year or two because they, they develop the tolerance, they can't get the feeling back, and eventually they feel kind of washed out. So there's a trap, which is that, you know, you know, because the risks are exaggerated, the trap is the tendency to say, oh, there are no risks. So there are risks from MDMA. They do have to be respected. I don't feel that neurocognitive consequences are likely even from extended use of MDMA over long periods of time. But I guess I'll, I'll leave you with one idea, which is that we think about MDMA as a two-day experience, not a one-day experience. We do it during the day. The therapy is always during the day. The reason we have the overnight stays is for people to rest and reflect and have time. And then the second day, it's more resting. They, they can't have any appointments, any requirements. They can't drive home. Somebody else has to come drive them home. And we have additional psychotherapy the next day for integration purposes. And so in that context, we do not administer 5-HTP or anything. In a, in a lot of recreational contexts, people either preload with uh, serotonin precursors or they administer them while they're doing them or they administer them the, the day after. We don't do that. And what we don't see is these sort of suicide Tuesdays, you know, the, the really low dip in mood after MDMA recreational use that some people report. A lot of that is people have done it at night. They haven't properly slept. The next day they haven't properly ate. Um, the next day they don't 
rest, they go back into doing other things, or they go to work, and, and that stress of that builds up and makes it a contrast between the normal life and the feelings that they felt with MDMA. So we actually find that the placebo group has more anxiety and depression after several days after MDMA, after the experimental sessions, than the group that got the MDMA plus therapy. Because the group that got the therapy with placebo were encountering their trauma, but without the support that the MDMA gives. And so they ended up feeling more anxious and depressed than the people that got the MDMA. So all, par all this is part of, I think, what the FDA has come to appreciate as the safety profile when used in a clinical setting. And so this debate about exactly how dangerous it is for excessive use, fortunately for us, is a debate that's important, but we don't have to engage in it. So we, we have satisfied the FDA that the administration of three doses of MMA in our clinical setting um, is more than the risks of that, whatever they are, more than balanced out by the benefits. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you very much. Great. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, this has been kind of a long podcast today, and so I'll keep my closing remarks brief. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you've most likely already heard what I'm going to say about the long-term toxicity effects of MDMA. First of all, if you haven't already seen the 30-minute video interview that I've posted on the homepage of our PsychedelicSalon.com website, the video that's titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, then, uh, if you're interested in learning more about the early days of MDMA use on the streets of Dallas, well, this would be a good place to begin. In it, I tell about the time that I took a huge amount of MDMA and what effects that experience had on me. Basically, I completely lost the ability for MDMA to have any effect on me at all, and that lasted for several years. Eventually, after not taking any MDMA for three or four years, it once again worked its magic for me, and from then on, I never used it more than three times a year. The other thing is that, until I moved out here to the coast, I never experienced that Tuesday letdown that Rick mentioned. I think that he called it Suicide Tuesday. You see, back in the days when we were first learning how to best use this important medicine, we generally took it on a Friday or a Saturday night, and so we had all day Sunday to relax and get back to baseline. So Rick's advice about setting aside two full days for an MDMA experience, I think, is very important. As for permanent toxicity and damage to my brain due to the huge dose that I took at one time, well, that experience was over 30 years ago, and to the best of my knowledge, I haven't suffered any loss of mental capacity during that time. And I most certainly don't have any holes in my brain. The only significant problem that I encountered from that stupid trick of taking a huge dose was that I lost the use of this medicine for several years. And on top of that, it was the single most uncomfortable MDMA experience of my life. So the bottom line is that if you are using this medicine on your own, you would be well served to follow the recommendations about how much to take and 
how to best nurture the experience uh, in ways that has been developed by thousands of psychonauts over many years. There's no need to reinvent the wheel here. At least, that's my opinion. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>